Are you a fire instructor or training officer eager to elevate your career? Inside the Modern Fire Instructor Pro Membership, you can leap beyond department limitations. Inside MFI Pro, you'll immerse yourself with monthly expert-led training, live bi-weekly Zoom Q&As, and an exclusive community of like-minded peers. You'll also have 24-7 access to our extensive and purpose-built resource library to help you stay ahead of your peers. Ready to ignite your full potential? To learn more, click the link in the show notes or head to trymfi.com. That's trymfi.com to begin your journey right now with a seven-day free trial. And when you sign up, make sure to use coupon code PODCAST to receive 40% off your monthly membership forever when you decide to stay. Secure your future, invest in yourself, and invest in MFI Pro at trymfi.com. Now back to the show. Welcome to the Modern Fire Instructor Podcast, where we tap into the wisdom of experienced professionals on topics like fire training, leadership, and learning. I'm your host, Rob Candle. Join me as we uncover actionable insights that you can use to grow your skills as an instructor, make you more effective, and help you leave a lasting impact on those you serve. Today, my guest is retired Deputy Chief Phil Jost. Phil is an experienced fire service veteran who retired from the Seattle Fire Department after 31 years and where his roles included Deputy Chief of Training. Phil is co-author of Fire Engineering's Air Management for the Fire Service and of the recently released Fire Instructor One. He is an experienced fire service instructor who travels widely across the country teaching on multiple topics, including tactical decision-making and the art of reading smoke. Inside today's episode, instructional craftsmanship, tactical decision games, the value of providing feedback, the Socratic method, and keeping everyone on the same Disneyland ride. Let's get curious and dive in. All right. I think I'd just like to dive in and start with uh, instructional craftsmanship. When I found that on your website, uh, it sounded interesting to me, and I'm curious if you could talk about that and tell us what instructional craftsmanship is to you. So, you know, I've been teaching something, you know, my mom, I mean, I always tell people when I, when I do classes, my mom was a teacher. Uh, She was a kindergarten teacher. The kindergarten was in the basement of my house. So I've been around uh, teaching and teachers literally since I was in her belly. And um, so I've, I've always sort of been somebody who wanted to know more about, you know, whatever topic I, I, I tend to dive in on things. And, um, so I started teaching my first classes actually as a swim instructor when I was um, 16 years old. And then I I did that until I got hired in the fire department in some way, shape, or form, and didn't teach in the fire department for probably the first three or four years. So I had enough seniority to sort of get on the team uh, to start teaching fire department stuff. And so um, through that journey of you know, starting to teach in the fire department, say around 1990 or so, I just, I just wanted to be a better instructor. And so I read books about instructing and I um, tried to learn things. So that's sort of in the, in the pre YouTube era. Uh, so the resources were a little bit harder to come by um, than they are now, but um, through that process, I got to introduce to a lot of different techniques that I started using and found effective. And so um one of the things that uh, I wanted to do was just offer a class that was focused on instructors in particular. And I first taught it at FDIC, which uh, a lot of people know that the 
initials, but it's the Fire Department Instructors Conference, and it was originally developed to uh, bring instructors in and, and give them um, curriculum or, or teach them about being an instructor. And so that was where that came from. And so once I, then as always, once I started to think about how was, how was I going to teach these things and develop curriculum to teach these things, um, to teach people how to be better instructors, uh, I, I just did a, a deep dive on that stuff. And so I, um, it's not, it's not so much, uh, theory as it is in my mind, at least application. And so um, an example of that is that something that um, is is like the 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 art of asking questions, which you know would be called the Socratic method if you go all the way back. But even just in the process of asking questions, uh, if your listeners think about the even if they go to the next class, most instructors ask a question and then just immediately answer it. And so there's a there's a whole process around that that involves uh, um, one you the instructor asks the question to the student uh, hears the question and then interprets the question um, to their own understanding. Then they have to formulate um, they have to understand the ideas they have to formulate a response. They actually self check the response um, internally. Then they decide whether or not they're going to offer that. Um, offer that as an answer to the group, right? So they, there's an evaluation that goes on. How much do they trust the group? Are they a peer? Are they an influencer within that group? Are they a novice within that group? They sort of do this assessment of where they stand and, and then decide if they're comfortable. If they're comfortable answering the question, then they put their hand up, right? So even for simple questions, it's a two to three second um, process for a student to get to the point where they're going to put their hand up, right, to go through all these steps. And if you are, are dealing with relatively complex issues or uh, trying to apply um, theory and practicum, you know, really challenging your students with questions you're asking, that time frame expands out to four, five, six seconds. And so uh, as an instructor, you have to one, you have to be able to formulate good questions, which is a, a whole different uh, skill set. Um, but you also have to have this real comfort with wait time. And you have to be essentially more comfortable with silence than your students do, than your students are. And so if you ask a question, if you ask a good question, you ask it properly. If you wait, if you'll wait three to five seconds, somebody will offer a solution. Somebody will want to fill the gap and, and you start that early enough. Let's say you have a four hour class. If you start that early, you build a, an expectation that your students are going to, that you're going to ask questions and your students are going to answer them. But the feeling of most instructors is they ask question one, they may not wait at all, right? They it's for, in their mind, it's a rhetorical question, but let's say the first five questions they ask are using those as a rhetorical question and they just can't immediately answer them. Well, what they've done to their students is their students are now checked out from questions. They, they have learned early on in the class that um, they're not going to be expected to answer. And so they don't, then they start not really interpreting the questions as questions, right? They're just, it's just the instructor talking in a different way. And, and if, if you tried to then ask a question 
and you expected an answer from the audience, you could have a long wait time because they're all, everybody in the room except for you is now expecting you're going to answer the question as the instructor. So the, the techniques involved around that, they're not difficult techniques, but um, one, you have to be aware of them. You have to be aware of your own um, shortcomings, your own uh, uh, pattern of behavior relative to questions. You have to get some experience in asking questions. Uh, there's, you know, there's a whole art to um, closed-ended questions, which are essentially yes or no questions. And those are actually not bad questions to, to start to begin the process of getting people to answer questions, um, to open questions or follow-up questions or questions where you're trying to dig deeper. Um, those are all um, techniques that once you, as you develop your skills as an instructor, an instructor, as you apply yourself to the craftsmanship that is teaching, um, you know, then you can learn those skills. And the, and the more you do it, the better you get, right? There's also, uh, you know, um, I mean, for another example would be like in tactics, you might have, you might have somebody who answers the question, but what they're, what they did was they threw, threw a grenade out there and they're expecting you to pick it up, right? And sometimes you've got to walk carefully around stuff, and not because you're you're trying to tiptoe um, too much around your students, but um, some sometimes you have uh, areas where they're they're a trap, or you end up in a hole. As an instructor, you know you can end up in a hole when when you start digging. Um, you might realize, oh wait a minute, I don't. I don't want to dig here anymore. And the first rule of holes, of course, is to quit digging, right? Um, sometimes when you're an instructor, you're going to ask questions or you're going to ask them in a way or respond in a way that maybe is a little bit of a face palm to somebody or is you, you might be trying to be funny, which is important as an instructor to have some humor, but you might say something that you go, oh, I wish I hadn't said that to that person. And, and so then that requires an apology, a public apology to that person right now. So all of these are encased in this idea of um, just asking questions as part of learning to be uh, really applying yourself to the craftsmanship that is being a teacher, um, which most fire department people are doing in addition to applying themselves to being a craftsman in the, in the art of firefighting to begin with. Right. And so that's what instructional craftsmanship is, is, is these types of skills and techniques uh, to create a learning environment that your students are actively engaged in. That's fun for you. It's fun for them. Uh, you know what the learning objectives are and you meet those. And at the far other end of the spectrum is uh, the instructor who's standing there reading a PowerPoint to their students. Right. You don't want to be there. You want to be all the way in this other place where you're so good at teaching that everybody's having fun and learning in a really dynamic, challenging, fulfilling environment. It sounds to me like uh, what you're describing is a very intentional process and that just knowing the material really well isn't enough necessarily. Teaching is not necessarily going to come natural simply because you know a lot about the topic. Would you agree? Well, and 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 so that's where the, I think the correlation to the craftsmanship of firefighting is 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 really I think beneficial to think about. Uh, you know, in 
I mean, I, I taught recruit schools and ran recruit, ran the recruit Academy in Seattle for, you know, something like 350 employees. Right. So I've seen it from a lot of angles and, when you're when you're teaching drill school, I mean, we can we get people um, at the end of drill school. They're very very proficient at putting up a ladder or stretching a hose. I mean, they're very very good at doing that. Those manipulative skills, right? And they have a little bit, right? They get a little bit of experience of doing it in context. But anybody who's been out on the street for any length of time knows that stretching a pre-connect. Um, on any sort of drill court or acquired structure, you know, um, planned um, structural fire training where you have control of the environment is completely different than doing it out on the street where you, you know, like in Seattle, I mean, some of the neighborhood streets, when you stop the engine, there might only be a foot on either side to, for you to get by, right? There's, there's cars parked, there's dogs barking, there's fences, trees, uh, you know, there's this there's this whole gamut of things that are in context that make it that make it challenging. Not even the given that when you if that new person looks at the house and it's on fire, um, there's there's just all of these emotional weights that go on top of that, right? So there's knowing the information is like being able to put up a ladder on the on the training ground, right? Now we're talking about the application in the classroom brings all of these other dynamics and you, and some of those you have to experience, right? So that's why people who are new to teaching aren't as good as somebody who's been teaching for a long time and, and, and has applied themselves to learning how to be an instructor, just like somebody on the fire ground has to learn how to apply themselves to the context of the street the instructor has to learn how to be good under the context of, you know, a, a wide variety of students, students who are disruptive sometimes, like like people yelling on the fire ground. Um, you know, you get sucked into a, a bird walk into a completely other subject, right, that, that's interesting at the time, but not really applicable to the lesson. All these things are um, pieces of the puzzle that, Knowing the material is knowing the basics, how to force doors, how to put up ladders, how to stretch hoses. And then there's this whole um, context of craftsmanship, which is in the is in the application that you have to you have to do it. You have to get feedback about it. You have to uh, uh, go, you know, do self-review and go, how did that class go? Where did it go? Well, where did I miss the mark and and develop yourself to be the best instructor you can be. Um, just like you would the best EMT you can be, the best paramedic you can be, the best firefighter you can be, or any other craft that's out there. Um, you, you have to um, apply yourself to the development of the skills necessary to identifying what those are, how many of them you have, which ones you want to develop, and be as good as possible. And, and all that comes back to your desire to serve or to meet the mission, right? On the fire ground, the mission is clear, right? On the EMS ground, the mission is clear. When you're an instructor, the mission is to, to help the students develop, right? To help the students learn as much as they can in this given block of time. And, and so it's not, the, the mission isn't just to read the material off the projector screen so that the student 
hears you read it, right? The, the, the mission is to make sure the student understands the curriculum that whatever that is that you're delivering so they can remember it, so they can apply it, so they can understand it in context, so they can review it, so, so that it carries forward with them from that day forward. So you mentioned the original purpose of FDIC. Um, I've not been to FDIC yet, but I'm I'm curious how many of the courses there are geared now today towards developing instructors. There's always classes there that um, that that I I would I'd have to go look for sure, but I bet there's at least one at every time period. And the the interesting thing about FDIC is. You know, you have these four-hour class, four-hour workshops. The hands-on obviously is a little bit different, but the four-hour workshops and the pre-conference, and then these hour and forty-five sessions. And and the one of the reasons I think um, it's valuable to be there is that the the options at each at each hour forty-five are significant. And I I could look, but I would be actually surprised if there wasn't some element at each hour forty-five block that you could look at and go, I mean, I've, I've seen programs um, on how to develop lesson plans, how to make PowerPoints and uh, you know, to get you beyond like a bullet list that you're going to read, right. Uh, understanding um, how to use pictures and, and visual representations that, that don't include any words or to have no more than, you know, what, what's the minimum size font you need in order to make it so you're, your students can read. Um, the other thing is, if you know what some of these techniques are, if you're if you're looking for those in any class, you can be thinking while you're learning the material that that instructor is offering. I mean, um, Rob, I've been in I've been in classrooms that have, you know, and I'm sitting, you know, maybe a third of the way back, and there's so much on the screen. There's so many words on the screen that that the font is so small that I'm having trouble reading it. And, um, and, you know, so there's so, and the, you know, it's just a, a downfall of human nature that when the information is up there, you start reading it and you can't read it and listen to the instructor. Right. So there's, there's no matter, no matter what the class is, I'm looking at it from, I'm trying to look at it from two perspectives. One is what's the information in the class itself. And two, how is this instructor delivering it? And are they asking questions and allowing um, uh, uh, wait time. Are they uh, are they reading what's on? I mean, if, if, honestly, even at, unless I was locked in, if I was at a class and I got there and the instructor was reading the PowerPoint, which has happened uh, to me a lot of times, not very often at FCIC, to be honest. But I, I go to a lot of conferences, and I like I still I still just go to classes to to learn. Um, if that instructor is reading the PowerPoint, you're likely to see me vacating at the first opportunity uh, because I'm just not learning. Uh, and you know, if I've got a, if I've got a chance to go learn, I'm going to go learn rather than just just be there to to support. Um, <clears throat> I also get asked to come to classes and give instructors feedback afterward, right? And that's a super powerful uh, tool is to have somebody who's in the room that you trust who's only purpose there is to watch you teach and to give you feedback, right? Um, it's that, 
to do anything if you have somebody who's mentoring you, providing honest, uh, realistic feedback, challenging you to be better. Uh, your odds of getting better faster. Uh, but at FDIC, there's there's a lot there there's a lot there that um, I think if your focus is you want to be a better instructor, um, even learning. Let's say you have a forcible entry class, like just going to a forcible entry class and seeing what some other person is teaching. What are they teaching techniques you don't know? Are they saying things that um, you don't understand? Are they saying things that you disagree with? And now you go, okay, that, why do I disagree with that? Uh, maybe it just helps you understand your own information better, right? Um, I think in, in anything in life, if you're an instructor, being becoming a better instructor is one of those. If your goal is to become a better instructor, then having the awareness to say, what, what can I take, whatever the class is, what can I take away from this class that will help me teach my classes better. It's that it's that that holistic approach to I'm going to be a teacher. I am a teacher, and I want to learn as much as I can about being a teacher, to being an instructor. Yeah, you've mentioned awareness a couple times as being an important piece of uh, develop self development as an instructor, and and the resources at FDIC. Do you have any other um, resources or recommendations that you make to people who are interested in improving as instructors, short of what you said about even yourself, go, you go to a lot of conferences. Yeah, I think, um, one is, uh, that, um, I've read a lot of books about how to ask questions, how to write questions. To me, one of the most powerful things that you can do as an instructor, um, <clears throat> one of the most powerful things that you can do as an instructor is, is to develop the pattern of asking your students questions about the material that you're covering. And I think this is particularly has become um, even more uh, prevalent in the era of sort of the, uh, the internet learning environment or the flipped classroom is what, you know, it sometimes gets called where uh, students are doing, you know, they, they in a lot of environments now, they're doing the reading and the studying before you even get together, whether it's online or in person. And so they should have a lot of uh, understanding of the of the basics of the material, uh, even when they arrive. And so then it's it's even more uh, a more pronounced duty of yours to uh, be able to ask questions and get that discussion going amongst the students because as they um, have to uh, formulate the material from the book into an answer that applies to the situation that you're that you have in your classroom, the richness of their understanding of the baseline material goes up very very fast. So, uh, particularly when you're teaching adults. The lecture method is just uh, brutally ineffective. Uh, the amount that they're going to remember is a tiny, tiny percentage of the details. Um, and often uh, lectures are used to create a situation where people are just trying to pass a test. And so if you're trying to create understanding, then this, this back and forth dialogue, you asking questions, them answering 
those questions and or asking each other questions to clarify ideas, to uh, um, crystallize thinking, to solidify the way that they understand whatever the information is in the real world becomes a much a much more uh, powerful way of, of getting the learning objectives uh, across because there's always going to be learning objectives that this is what the student needs to know at the end of this presentation. I, I shouldn't say always, uh, but predominantly um, those are there. Uh, there we could talk about some other uh, that would which is on our list to talk about tactical decision gaming or some of these other things that are they have learning objectives, but often they're a little more open to interpretation uh, because they're opportunity based necessarily, but most fire department curriculums in particular say, hey, at the end of this, the student has to know these things. And so if you can get them to know those things in a really um, comprehensive, uh, they understand the strengths and weaknesses, they understand when they're used, when they're not used, all those sorts of things come from more of a discussion and a questions-based methodology rather than um, the lecture. I want to get to the tactical decision games and simulations in a moment, but first I'd like to touch on feedback. You've mentioned feedback a couple of times, and having been to one of your classes, I uh, I heard you refer to hitting for the cycle in the city of Seattle. As uh, Can you talk a little bit about your experience in Seattle and then specifically in the training division specifically? And I'm wondering what you did because you were you were um, I would imagine had quite a bit of influence with your position as a deputy chief um, in the training division. What did you do to develop your instructors or to provide feedback to your instructors that were working for you at drill school or in other capacities to help them along in their journeys to improve as an instructor? So. Um, <laughs> So when I uh, speak about him for the cycle in the training division, what I, what I was talking about is that uh, I was there as a recruit instructor, right? So not only was I there as a recruit, so everybody in Seattle starts in recruit school, uh, barring the fire chief. The fire chief is the only position where you could be hired, uh, or a uniform position where you could be hired and not um, start in drill school. Every other uniform member starts in drill school. Even if you come from another organization and you already have your fair, fair, you're still starting in drill school. Everybody starts in drill school. So uh, I was there as a lieutenant in the in the training academy, and uh, we were we were teaching thirty to forty students a recruit class. You know, they're you know at that point in time, I think they were twelve and a half or thirteen weeks long, and then pumping them out into the operations division. So I did that for a couple of years, rotated back to the uh operations division i got an opportunity to go back as the captain of recruit training and then again go back as the captain of in-service training so there's only two captains uh at that time there was only two captains in the train division one did recruits and one the other side did in-service which is all the training for everybody else all the uniform members of the organization right uh so it's a big job and then uh after i got promoted to then I went, you know, then I went back to the companies, back to the operations division. And then when I made deputy, I went back to the training division and was supervising the the entire program, right? Both side, both the recruit training side and the in-service side. So, you know, uh, the administrative specialist who'd been there in the training division for 35 years said that she was the first one that had 
been there in every position when they came back. Now, there's a bunch of lieutenant's positions. I certainly didn't fill all of those, but um, just that there's a comprehensive understanding of what's going on in the division. And that was something that she said she'd never seen. So I, I personally take a little bit of pride in that. And um, because I've, I've, like I said I, earlier, I've been a trainer, um, you know, I've been around uh, uh, training and training, uh, training people and training ideas, you know, really since I was a kid. And so um, with that, so when, when I was there uh, primarily as the deputy chief, I, I just made a practice of being um, like, if there was a lecture, I would, there's a lecture every week, right? There's, I think five hours, they have lecture for five hours a week. Um, You know, all your main things, building construction, fire prevention, they do uh, some HR stuff, although not very much, you know, hose and ladders, all the stuff that you need for firefighter one, they get lectures on building construction, et cetera. I'd sit out on those lectures uh, usually for an hour or so. And then I just make notes for the instructor, send them an email, say, Hey, um, here's, here's some things I thought you did well. Here's some things I thought you could work on just for me to, to, um, be get, doing what I thought was part of my responsibility was, was as a leader was just to be present in those classrooms, at least to some degree. And even the recruits seeing me in there, I think it, it is helpful. Then, um, from a practical side, um, there's a, there's a whole skill set to being able to run, um, in a drill academy to be able to have five students, um, you know, each week it's a different curriculum, at, at least uh, in my time in Seattle. And so like week one of hose, right. You're talking about stretching. It's almost all inch and three quarter, not almost the first week is all inch and three quarter, right. Second week is all two and a half. And the third week of hose is all vertical, right. Standpipe operations and things like that. So, you're essentially taking civilians and saying, this is a hose showing them how to, you know, uh, do a stretch of an inch and three quarter to the front door. So you demonstrate and then they start to practice. And then as they practice, they get feedback. Well, um, just in the way that you organize, uh, how, how you're doing that practice, you can take, if you have an hour long session, you can get one practice and one, you know, you can, you can think about if you have five recruits, you have one hour, each of them, you can, you can set it up and each of them might get two or three reps. Um, or if you change the way you do that, you might be able to get them six or seven reps each with a little bit of feedback. And so there's, there's ways to organize those things. And so I would just go out on the drill court and I would watch, especially new instructors, I would watch them. And if I would see some areas where they could be more efficient, and by more efficient, I mean giving the students more sets and reps, more stretches of hose, more uh, opportunities, you know, uh, to put up a ladder, uh, to put it up properly, to provide, to get feedback um, from their instructor, right? So watching how the instructor did it. And then most of those, not most, in those instances, what I would do is I would uh, get the captain who was in charge of the lieutenants, right? I would I would bring the captain and say, hey, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I recommend. Here's, here's how this can be organized in a way to make it more effective. And then um, at least in my situation, the captain was all about that. And so the captain then would do the mentoring directly with the 
lieutenant because I don't, you know, uh, they're, they're so busy, uh, you know. And so, you know, me, me being there when they have their 15-minute break or something like that now is – and I'm jumping the chain of command there too, right? Um, so then it didn't take very long before the captain started to do the same thing but without my influence, right? Just just watching the way things are shaped. Again, when you're doing, you know, which, which is now a 16-week academy and you have students in Seattle – it's not unusual in a in a forty hour week for the students to be on the drill court for thirty two to thirty five of those hours, right? So we we spent a lot of time doing these manipulative skills, and so if you take each of those students and and take each hour and change it from having say four reps to six reps of that skill over the 16 weeks that makes a tremendous difference in the number of opportunities they've had to practice each one of these skills but that comes from um you have to be there to do it right you can't you can't call it in we can't i can't um you know i can't just give them ideas and then send them loose you have to you have to invest time and they have to be willing to learn Right. And so especially if I had, say, um, there's a rotation there, if I have an instructor and this is their first drill academy, well, that means they're going to do at least four academies while they're here, which could be 160 members of the organization. And so if we can work with them in this first drill academy um, to become even 15 or 20 or 30 percent better, which a lot of the, the, the instructors like this is really their first time. You know, they were firefighters, then they became lieutenants, and now they're in drill school. You know, they've done some training, but they haven't really led and been responsible for a group over a 40-hour week. And, and, I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of demands on them, but the, the underlying thing is making sure that, they, that, that they're approaching it from a perspective of what do these students need to learn and how can I best – uh, deliver them the opportunity to absorb these skills. And uh, so, I mean, that's a long way to go around saying like, it's maybe it's just the way that I did it, but, but you have to, you have to be there. And so if you, if you want to mentor somebody, you got to be in the room with them. If you want to have a mentor in the room and you have to find one who's willing to come in the room or come watch you do your demonstration. If you're, if you're, hey, I'm, I'm giving this forceful entry class, can you come and just give me some feedback? Um, you're going to appreciate the feedback and it, 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 it'll make you better. And the other side of that is if you have the opportunity to mentor people, if you have the opportunity to watch them teach or watch them do a demonstration, you learn a lot because you start to formulate how could it be done better? How could this, what, what could help the approach, right? This, the, that, that willingness to both teach and learn um, on an ongoing basis is, is it, again, is what that instructional craftsmanship is about. It's, it's when you're teaching, try to be the best, best teacher possible. And that will make you a better firefighter, no doubt about it. Yeah, you've talked about awareness and feedback. And, and even the most aware person, we all have our blind spots. 
And so I just, I really think that that having a mentor, somebody that you trust that can provide you feedback to help can really um, shorten the learning curve maybe on your, or increase your self-awareness of those areas where you need to focus your attention. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And, and you might, there, there's just things that you probably don't even realize you're doing. Um, <laughs> one of my, one of my favorites is, because uh, people kind of get a kick out of it is to uh, show a little video and see how, how many times, you know, whoever the, is in the video says the word like, you know, uh, you know, you, you have people, it's, every second or third or fourth word it, and it drives you crazy, but they don't even realize they're doing it. Right. Yeah. And as an instructor, you can have these same, these same things, right. Where, where you're saying or doing things that you don't even realize. And, and my, my take would be that it doesn't have to detract from the uh, student's ability to learn. You, you want to change it. If it's not enhancing the student's ability to learn. You know, doing no harm isn't good enough. We we want to be proactively uh, at every step, increasing the ability of our students to learn the material, to to learn the skills, right? The manipulative skills and knowledge, you know, and, and knowledge skills are are different. Uh, some people make excellent classroom instructors, but can't can't run a, a training ground to save their life. And the, and the reverse is true too. I, I know people who are, are great drill ground instructors. They're great, but man, you put them in a classroom uh, with some props and a PowerPoint and, uh, and they just, it's just not there. And th- that's okay too, because, because what the main thing is you understand, you understand what you're good at. You understand what you're trying to develop and certainly you can get better, but in the end, it's got to be that focus on the mission is the students, right? The, the mission is their ability to absorb the material. Well, let's move to uh, simulations and tactical decision games. Um, what is your philosophy regarding the use of simulations as a proxy for actual fireground experience? So the the research is clear and, and I've read, I've read a lot of, of research, uh, on both in, in a, in a lot of, um, domains, which I think would be similar to ours, uh, where you have to make critical decisions under time constraints with limited information. There's other criteria too, but those seem to fit pretty well. And in all, in all of the research, um, the, the, there's no doubt that actual experience is uh, a great teacher. Um, unfortunately, the real in the real world, uh, the test comes before the lesson in many cases, um, and you just don't have. There is not the ability unless you're unless you're in the busiest um, companies in the busiest cities, you're not getting that many sets and reps, and nobody is. And even if um, you know, sort of an interesting thing with uh, some of the big cities is you can be in the busiest house in that city, but your the the depth of understanding is is very deep, but the breadth might be pretty small because you are going to a lot of fires in one or two or three particular types of um, you know there's there's people who have massive amounts of, spirit, of experience in high rise tenements, 
But if I threw them into a, a concrete tilt-up strip mall, they just have no idea because they don't have any of those in their There's none in their jurisdiction, right? Now, they can make some guesses, but they don't have any actual experience. And so um, met, Many, if not most, of the firefighters and fire ground decision makers need a fairly broad uh, understanding of building construction, building types, all those sorts of things. And you just don't get it. You, you just can't. You just can't get enough sets and reps. And so, the 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 distance of learning between a well crafted simulation um, and reality is in in the research is very tight from a learning perspective the differences are almost negligible and so then we we say okay what then you have to say okay what's a well-crafted um simulation and you know so that if if you if you accept the premise that a well-crafted simulation is very close in learning to uh, an actual experience which is what the evidence shows uh, the scientific evidence shows over decades and decades of research across many, many fields. Um, and I've got some of it sitting right over here, you know, uh, that uh, then it's about making sure that you um, can do a well-crafted simulation. So you're, you're creating what's called cognitive fidelity. The, the situation, the person, the, the person who is the trainee, in, within the way that their mind is working at that moment, you're you're creating uh, enough cognitive fidelity. They believe it's real. That's what matters is they believe it's real. Physical fidelity is much much less important. Um, the you know the the environment that they're in it can have some impact, but the impact is much less than um, spending the effort to create good cognitive fidelity. The person believes the situation is real when they're in the training scenario. And it, it doesn't take a lot of physical fidelity to create good cognitive fidelity. So I know that you have some experience. Um, you, you use a lot of video in your training. I know that you'll use video in your tactical decision game. Um events as well as your YouTube channel where you're, you're you're teaching sometimes weekly with with the art of reading smoke. Can you talk a little bit about let's start with the tactical decision game for those people who maybe have never heard of that term before and describe how you use simulation within that context? Yeah, so the the term tactical decision gaming um came from a guy named John Schmidt. He's a Marine Corps <sighs> Forgive me, John, if I get it wrong, but I'm the Marine Corps major, and uh, many firefighters are, are familiar with a, a book, um, uh, MCDP-1 or FMFM-1. It's the same same name, just different eras, called Warfighting, and John wrote that book. And it's a Marine Corps um, philosophy of uh, training and preparation for war. And if, if you haven't read it, it's, 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 it's not a big book. It's but it's, it's not, I would say of the books I'd recommend, that would be one of them. But um, John created Tactical Decision Games in the Marine Gazette, which is a monthly publication that the Marine Corps has. It's probably both, it was just paper and, and now it's, um, I assume it's virtual now that you can get it online or maybe they do both. I don't know. But um, he took what, what, what was uh, a pretty simple, he creates a map. 
he has an enemy. He has the forces that you're commanding. Um, if you're a lieutenant or a um, platoon sergeant or uh, even a captain or a battalion commander in the Marine in the Marines or other um, services, and he puts a situation on paper, and it's a very simple um, line drawing type uh, situation, and then um, anybody in the Marine Corps who who wanted to respond could write a solution and send it into the Marine Corps is that they would, they would publish them. And then there was this discussion about what were the good operations and the bad operations and the strengths and weaknesses. And did you think about this? Did you think about that? Which is where the learning takes place. And John adopted that from something that the Prussian army did. Um, you know, I think in the 1700s, uh, they started a real formal discipline of, of having war games. And so these are tactical decision games are just low fidelity war games. And um, like the U S Naval Academy had, had a big war gaming facility. Uh, war games has proven over the course of centuries to be an effective way to train um War fighters, And so John just adopted that to something he called the tactical decision game, which is a low physical fidelity, but high cognitive fidelity um, situation. So that's, I just have recreated that. So when I'm doing tactical decision gaming, or if I do my tactical decision class, we do a lot of scenarios. I mean, in an eight hour class, we'll do eight to 10 uh, scenarios and we'll, We'll do them and really spend some pretty good time on each. And we're talking about just the first two engines, first truck company. Um, if I'm doing battalion chiefs, I give them, you know, I drop them in the middle of scenarios. They might be going, the scenario might be going well, the scenario might be going poorly. But because battalion chiefs very often absorb actions that other people have taken, I, I, I build that in if I'm training a cadre of battalion chiefs. And so given the same fire, I can pull a fire off of YouTube um, or, you know, any video platform. But let's say a two-story wood frame, single-family house fire. And I can very quickly, at, at virtually no physical cost. I mean, it takes me, you know, after a little bit of practice now, it takes me maybe three hours to put together a good scenario. But no, from a, from a monetary perspective, the individual... If one of your listeners wants to do it, there's there's no cost to them, right? And I I do it on paper and I do it on PowerPoint. Where I if 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 the agency has three person engine companies, I just put together three three person engines and and two three person truck companies, and I say, hey, here's your response. You're responding in your organization with engine one, two, and three, ladder four and five. And you're first in, and here's the address of all the things that you might get if you are, I'm, I'm shooting for as close as possible, the same information as you would traditionally get as part of your dispatch routine. And then I say, okay, you're arriving, and I just show you the video of the house fire. And it's, you know, it's a real, it's a real house that's really on fire. And uh, it's like, okay, Tell me what your solution is. What do you want the first two engines? Where's the first line going? What size is it? What do you want the second engine to do? What's your, you know, in, in, in NFPA terms, we would say, what's your incident action plan? Like, and then how are you going to communicate? What are the what are the specific orders you're given? Like, you need to verbalize those. Okay, 
they stretch the pre-connect to the front door. Engine one's at the location. You give your size up information. Engine two, do this thing, right? Whatever that thing is, those need to be in the format of order so that, you know, in, in, in a short, short window, ideally the same window as you would have at a fire ground, you're, you're giving all of the, of the detail of what your plan is in the form of orders or directives. And then we'll spend um, with the group, right? We have one person do that. Everybody, everybody has to formulate their plan. And then I typically only call, I give everybody, you know, 15 or 30 seconds to formulate a plan. So each person in the room is creating their own plan. Then I'll call on one person, which puts a little bit of pressure on them. And they have to give me their plan. And then as a group, we talk about the plan that they have. What what are the strengths of the plan? What are the weaknesses of the plan? How will you what what will be the the things that you see or hear on the radio that will indicate to you that the plan is working? What should you be on the watch out for? What are some areas where this plan has some um, risk? Um, you know, is there is there a way for us to create a situation where we can create more resilience? Is there and, and so it's in that discussion of the details of why the plan is going to be effective or why the plan is subject to being um, problematic. That's where the learning takes place. And so, you know, with a given scenario like that of a two story wood frame residence with the same scenario, we'll probably get two or three plans and we'll dissect each one of those plans. And so it creates this very rich learning environment, but the, the need for the scenario to the, 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 the technical need for it to be high fidelity or high realism is very low. What matters is that the, the person that's sitting in the seat making the decision they feel like they're making the decision under the stress of reality. And I just use videos because they're uh, available. Certainly we've used simulations. I've used plenty of simulations in the past when we were going a little more in depth. Um, like for chief mayday training, we, we did, we developed some scenarios because we wanted there to be some change in the way that the fire behavior um occurred over the course of time. Now, you might be able to find that in a video. It just becomes uh, challenging. Um, I've, I've found it challenging to find a video that I can look at at minute three and minute six and minute nine and have it accurately reflect um, the fire behavior as it might exist um, for the student at the time. And so I typically don't go very deep into the scenario, but focus on um, initial decision-making. Just repeat, repeat, repeat the initial decision-making. The first two or three moves, whether you're the first arriving um, officer, first arriving engine officer, first arriving truck officer, what are the first, what's the first thing that you're wanted in this given situation? What do you want to get done right now? And how are you going to communicate that? And how are you going to know it's working? And then for battalion chiefs, it's, Given the situ- given what these company officers have already done, how, how what's the first two or three moves that you want to get done, right? That you know, and I'm not talking about the call for resources or setting up staging. I'm talking about where are lines getting laid, 
who's going to lay them and how do you communicate that? And then um, if I'm doing something like Mayday training, it's, it's the rest of that is just build up because when we drop the Mayday, the situation exists as it exists at the time that you get a Mayday. You don't get to go in the past and change it. But what you do get to do is say, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to respond by getting the who, what, and where. And then in most, um, most departments you have, there's some sort of radio thing that happens, uh, with, with, um, notifications. And there's a, there's a short period of time where someone else is going to take care take over your ability to communicate. And what that does is it gives you 15 to 20 seconds to figure out when you get back on the radio, what are you going to say? Who are you going to say it to and what actions are you going to dictate to solve this problem? And so even though those, those are different ways of doing the scenarios, the, the basis comes back to that the, the development and delivery needs to be as simple as possible to put the person in the situation. And, and oftentimes people want to, you know, I can't do these sims because I don't have a million dollar facility or a $5 million facility, or I don't have, you know, like, look, it doesn't take that much, you know, grab a video off of YouTube. In fact, sit down at the binary table, take it, take a copy of the magazine, set it down and say, okay, Everybody tell me what, if you saw this, what would be the next three things that you would want done on the fire ground? And everybody goes, they, they think of it or they write it down and then you go, okay, what, what would you want to do? Well, I'd want to do this, right? It, that's all you need is to spark the beginning, put them in a situation where they have to think about what would I do right now and then talk about it. And that could take us back to some of the questions-based approach to teaching and some of those things that we talked about earlier, because you you do have to have some of those skills to facilitate this type of discussion, right? Uh, but getting started and getting sets and reps, one, getting sets and reps for your people in it as much as possible, but two, you getting the sets and reps as the person who's putting it together, what's working, what's not working. Trust me, I've done plenty of plenty of ta- tactical decision games where afterwards I was like, oh, that was a fiasco. You know, <laughs> I mean, that was now even these the students might go, hey, that was really fun. But, you know, it's like, OK, but what did we actually learn? Right. So there, that, that's part of that instructional craftsmanship. But when you talk about tactical decision gaming, you're talking about creating um, low cost, low fidelity, highly repeatable um, scenarios that you can do with a whiteboard. You could do with a copy of a magazine. You can do with a video that you pull off YouTube, something that is essentially ubiquitously available um, to you to say, Hey, let's put our let's put myself or my people into the decision making seat. Have them make the actual decisions, and then and then let's do almost an after action type review of of what were the decisions, what would you change, would you do anything differently? There's a whole set of questions that we could put around that, and that's essentially what tactical decision gaming is. It's just a a form of war gaming that gives you an opportunity. Um, to practice, get the sets and reps necessary to practice the skills of decision-making. You talked about um, you've, you've done some tactical decision games that turned into fiascos. And in the first question, you talked about uh, 
teaching on the fire ground or on the drill ground and maybe having somebody throw a grenade out to you or um, you end up in a conversation that you don't want to be, you really don't want to spend any more time on. And when having, having watched you lead um, uh, a couple of these tactical decision games, one of the things that I observed that I thought was significant and, and kind of unique was your ability to keep people focused on the plan at hand. Because it's so easy for when those, when the other people who are observing weigh in, it's easy for that, the focus to become what they think ought to be happening. And I've seen you, can you speak a little bit to how you, uh, the importance of doing this, but also how you keep it focused on, this is the plan that we're talking about right now, so that you can have time to ask questions and get depth on that plan, the, the strengths and the weaknesses and, and learn from that specific plan without watering things down into five different plans that everybody's got an idea on. Well, um, so I, the way I think about it is I, I, I talk, um, I talk about keeping everybody on the same Disneyland ride. You know, um, if we're all going to learn, what's what's available we, if we're all in the teacups we have to be on the teacups we can't be half of us on the teacups and half of us on magic mountain or whatever you know the the dragon the dragon uh um roller coaster or whatever it is right so uh you know if we're all if we're all there together we all have to be on the same ride so um the sort of the classical thing when, when people when you're having discussions around the beanery table or at the bar or whatever it is, right? Somebody says, well, you know, we had a two-story house fire and the fire was on floor two. And before long, somebody's like, well, what if the fire was on floor one? Or what if it's on the basement? And and you start going into all of these, or what if it was a three-story house, right? Or what if that's an apartment building? And so um, before long, everybody's on a different Disneyland ride. One person's still on the house fire on floor two, Somebody else is in the basement, right? So every, everybody's all over the place as far as what they're thinking about as part of the discussion. And so um, one of the things that I, I strive for is to say, no, um, yeah, we're not talking about that fire. We're talking about this fire that we're looking at right now. It's this fire. This is the fire we're talking about. Um, if And I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about basement fires in addition to talk about floor two fires but let's if 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 that seems to be where everybody wants to go let's erase the board let's start over with a basement fire give you the parameters have you make the decisions and then start talking about basement fires and and stay focused there and um one is that the learning is is way higher if we're if we're staying focused because the techniques don't techniques don't always translate from one one situation to the next right i mean uh if you have a top floor fire you very well might use vertical ventilation but if you have a basement fire that may not be your first best option right i mean we could probably have a discussion about that i'm sure somebody's listening to it and go no he's wrong okay you know we can have that discussion right but um so one is keeping everybody on the same disneyland right uh part of that is that um Remember I said when when I put when I have a class, let's say I have 10 people in the class and I give them the situation, I say, okay, you're the first in decision maker. 
here's the resources that you have. Here's your three engines and two trucks. Each has three people on them because that's what your organization or what's common in your area. Um, and I say, and everybody say, okay, here's the fire. Boom. Tell me, you know, come up with your first three moves and t- and, and figure out how you're going to say it on the radio. And then we, we pick one person and we do it. So sort of the, the, the downside of that is that because everybody created a solution, everybody wants to talk about their solution. Mm. So when I pick, when I pick someone in the class, they give me their solution. The natural tendency for the other students is to go, Oh, but my solution is what's my, I want to get my solution up there. And so, um, it's very important, at least, especially in the first one or two um, tactical decision games over the course of a day, right, is, is to really kind of set that bar hard. It's like, no, no, we're not talking about a different solution. So one way to handle that from a structural standpoint is, go, okay, I understand you have a different solution. I'm going to come back to you for you, your solution, and we're going to talk about your solution next, right, to, to give them credit for, for sticking their hand up and, and volunteering, Um but the other piece is to, to say, okay, I, we're going to get another plan on the board, but to let all the other students know, hey, but we're talking about this plan that we're looking at right here, the one that we've already put on the board, the, the radio communications that we've already talked about. That's what we're going to discuss right now. And so then we spend, you know, 10 or, 10 or 12 or 15 minutes or whatever just talking about this plan and then literally erase the plan Right. And go to the second person and say, OK, start start with the same base uh, that you started with with the first person and let the second person give their radio or give their radio. You know, if they're going to give a size up, that's fine. If they're given radio orders like engine two from from command, uh, do this. Right. Let that person give their whole plan. And then that's one of the nice things about that is if it's different we can talk about the strengths and weaknesses of that plan. And then we can also compare and contrast the plans like yeah. um, to give people a really good understanding of, of, you know, cause um, it just gives them a much richer, right. So e- each time they, each time that one of these plans gets put up there uh, and people you know, it should be reasonably familiar with the idea of slides in your slide tray. Each one of those is a slide, right? It's a pattern by which, you can solve this problem. And so you, you recognize the pattern and then you've talked about the strengths and weaknesses of that pattern, making it, making that slide a very vivid slide. And it, if you're a not, if you're a novice and you've never seen that slide before, when you see that solution, it goes up there. It's, it's just barely a sketch drawing and we're trying to fill in detail. Somebody who's been to that, you know, been to that exact fire or something very similar to it, the, the slide in their tray is like 1080p, right? It's it's a really vivid um, uh, pattern that they understand very very well, and so you're you're trying to take you know take all the stuff and put it together, but each time you're talking about a a, a a solution, think about it as a as a single slide in the slide tray and stay on that slide. And make that slide as vivid as you can for everybody. Then if you want to talk about another solution, okay, that slide, throw that slide away, get a new slide. The new slide is likely to be similar, right? It doesn't have to be the same as, but it's similar. But again, it's a new slide. It's a new way to solve this problem. And you can, um, 
manipulate that. Now, there's uh, uh, another aspect to that I think, Rob, that it might be helpful is that um, if the first person that you that you get up there, you get a slide, and <laughs> as an instructor, you can tell that like everybody else in the room just hates that solution, and they're just waiting to just rip it apart. Um, this tendency of people to want to put their own solution on the board actually gives you the ability to, you know, support that, to talk about that plan for a very short period of time, but then go, hey, let's get another plan on the board and just erase it and move on to a different plan, right? And so having some knowledge or understanding of who the novices and the experts and stuff like that in the room, that's, that's mm-hmm. helpful. Um, sometimes you can't do that if you're teaching a lot of people that you don't know, but um, sometimes like, you know, you have one person in the room says, Hey, let's go in the teacups and everybody else in the room is going, no, no, no. We want to be on the bumper cars. Like you go, you just talk about the teacup. You just, you barely get on that ride. And then you go, whoop, erase. We're all going over here to the bumper cars. Right. Yeah. And so it, it lets you as an instructor uh, maneuver uh, to slides that you, that at least you, you hope are pretty accurate to the situation as it would exist for the people who are in the room. It does become more challenging if you have a wide, you know, um, like the, the some of the ones I do for chiefs, right? I have people, I have chief officers, and this is all virtual, but I have chief officers in the room that represent the largest organizations in the country. And I have people in the room who used to work for those organizations and now are chief officers in rural areas. And then I have people who are in, you know, knowing uh, suburban, but really, really rural departments. And so the, the way that each of these people thinks about how these problems should get solved is, is pretty broad. But one of the things that's nice with, with that group of chief officers that they have is they're all interested in how the other people do it because you just, it just helps you understand better what you think you should do the next time you have that problem. And so that's kind of a long answer to your question, but I hope I hit the right marks. No, I think you did. I think that's, I think that's good. And it, it harkens back to our original question about craftsmanship um, and the skill set required to facilitate um, a simulation or a tactical decision game that, that can have a lot of value if it's facilitated well, but it could also devolve into a fiasco like you mentioned if if you don't have the 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 skills to to control the room i want to pause for a second phil um and kill this fly that's tormenting me (laughs) (laughs) but also we're at an hour of recording and i have i want to respect your time and not go much longer um i do want to i have down as my third question where we could start talking about the art of reading smoke your youtube um, your YouTube channel, but also your the classes that you're teaching. Do you have time to to hit this third one? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Let me see. If this fly is probably going to go dormant now. And have you noticed it flying around me, tormenting me? No, I haven't. Okay, good. Maybe it's not even getting picked up. All right. So I'm just going to pause here, and then we'll move into question three. Okay, I want to um, I want to get into the art of reading smoke. You are um, 
you've been handed the baton basically from Dave Dodson and um, you're teaching the art of reading smoke, the next generation. And so I'd like to hear from you about that um, teaching that you're doing and, and how you're doing that. But then also what exactly have you done um, to make it your own, which is what, which is what I think you're doing when you say the next generation. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So Dave asked me, I think around 2018 or so, um, Dave and I became, you know, just good friends from teaching at conferences together. We taught several classes, uh, together, um, and uh, just really enjoyed each other's company. And so when he, he had been teaching full-time on the road, I think for around 20 years and asked me if I'd be willing to take over the reading spell curriculum because, uh, he believed and I believe that it's such a valuable curriculum to just have it go away would be a disservice. And so after a little consternation on my part about uh, stepping into his shoes, I said yes. And uh, so I spent about a year um, on the road going to classes with him and at first just attending, right? And, and when I started this process, I went into my notes and I'd, I'd seen him teach like eight or nine times already. So I already had a a pretty broad a collection of my own notes from the classes. But then to attend, uh, to think about teaching. And then he, you know, as, as a good mentor would, he had me start taking over pieces of the curriculum. Right. And I would teach those and he would provide me feedback and, you know, we'd be on the road, you know, teaching a day, uh, you know, we, we'd sit down and have dinner and talk about the day. And then we, you know, teach the next day and, and so after about a year, he basically said, you know, okay, you're, I'm done with you. Get out there on the road and start teaching on your own. And he encouraged me to make it my own as well. And so the, the interesting thing to me is that the, the basics of the curriculum are so strong that the, the same thing is still true, which is Dave's number one point is that smoke is fuel, right? And uh, so I start out with smoke is fuel because it's as true today as it was back then. Right. If, if not more so. Right. And uh, the one of the things I've changed is that uh, his second point was that the fuel had changed. And in the era when Dave was had started teaching, that was true of some firefighters. So firefighters who came in and, you know, got started in the 60s or 70s or and or like me, I you know, I got started in the 80s, late 80s. Um, you know, some some of those firefighters had seen a change from wood, wool, and cotton to predominantly plastics that are inside, especially houses today, but certainly all all occupancies, hotels, uh, commercial buildings, it's all plastic now, right? Unless you're going to a cotton warehouse, uh, there's a lot of plastic and everything, and that's essentially what it meant. It's like, so if the smoke had, was fuel, um, you know, if you started with wood, wool, and cotton, and now it's all plastic, then that fuel load, that the smoke produced is different than it was before. And so all I've done is I've changed that to say, look, this, uh, this plastic fuel fire, this plastic smoke, this, uh, really rich, uh, environment, it's, it's not changed for most of the people who I'm teaching who have 10 years or less in the fire service, that fuel package is the same as it was when they got here. Um, it's important to understand it in that, in that, rapid fire growth is normal, right? There was a period of time um, 
when you went to conferences and stuff where there were classes about how the the fire has become an animal and like you know all of these descriptors of this change in the fire behavior and that was true for a period of time but what i want firefighters now to understand is that rapid rapid change is normal on the fire ground and that's what you should expect and so that's just a piece where i brought in and and we spend some time um, understanding what are the dynamics because for any organization there's there's this period of time between when you arrive and when you're ready to take action, which is opening that first line. That might be a minute, that might be 90 seconds, it might be, it doesn't matter what that time is for your organization because their organizations are so varied. I mean, some places are gonna show up with four people in four minutes and some people are gonna, some organizations are gonna show up with two people in eight or 10 minutes, right? And so what what your, your tactical actions have to be based on, what exists now, how long will it take you to get that first line into operation? And then where are you going to put it? And you need to understand what the fire is going to do during this period of time. Um, because there's, there's just a window of opportunity based on the modern fire behavior that rapid fire progress is normal. Uh, you want to make sure you get the right tool, the right weapon in the right location to have the impact that you want to make. And you don't want to be, I don't, I don't want any firefighter to pull up and get surprised by what happens in the next 60 seconds. And so that's one of the areas where I've changed it. Two is I, I'm just by nature, I'm a, a very uh, uh, crowd-driven, uh, video-driven presentation style, right? And so while we spend some time in PowerPoint, um, probably – you know, we're going to go to 15, 20, 25 fires over the course of a, of a six and a half, you know, eight hour day that's six and a half hours of student contact time. Um, and we're going to explore what you're seeing, what it means, how to understand it. And in a relatively short period of time, I'm not giving you those insights. I'm asking for those from the group. And then, um, reinforcing some of the stuff that we talked about earlier in the podcast of, of getting them to, to verbalize this stuff so that they demonstrate, they understand it and they can learn from each other. And um, there's a lot of knowledge in any one of these classrooms. And um, you certainly don't need to hear everything from me, but I can guide that discussion in a way that uh, creates a really rich learning environment um, we can learn to understand what's going on at windows, what's going on at doors, how we can interpret the neutral plane. Um, when it comes to the four attributes of smoke, volume, velocity, density, color, each of those can tell us some things about what's likely to happen in the next uh, couple of minutes, where the fire is now, right? That's a big piece of it, where the fire is now. What's next is where it's going. What are we going to do about it? And then there's uh, another piece is, uh, when you start applying your tactics, right, when you start applying water, when you start doing ventilation, when you start doing these things, you need to have expectations of what you think is should happen based on what you can see, which is the smoke. So when you start applying water, if your fire attack's going to be effective, you should have a rapid and sustained decrease in velocity and density. That's what you should get. There's, and I have videos that demonstrate these things like, 
this, okay, this is what it looks like when, uh, let's say, for example, you're doing a exterior off-plane attack into the A-side window, right? Floor two, A-side window, um, and you're going to do uh, uh, you're going to do a reset of that fire. If that's going to work, what does it look like? How long does it take? What what are the visual cues? Because that's what reading smoke is: is understanding from what you see what's going on inside the building. And so, those are just some of the ways that I've made it my own in in concert with um, the way that that I teach, the way that I interact with students. Um, is just different than Dave. And, and I mean, I, I learned a lot from Dave. I can tell you that uh, even before I start taking over the reading smoke curriculum, I just, I, there's some of the way he teaches. He's really funny and uses a lot of great humor um, to drive points home, to make things memorable, which is what we're all trying to do when we're teaching classes. Um, but I, I can't copy him. I can, I can, I can take the baseline and I say, how, how do I, uh, bring this, uh, I mean, even the YouTube stuff, which I post, there's like a hundred, maybe a hundred videos on there, uh, where it's like, Hey, this is just a little piece of the curriculum. And that, that, uh, you know, I think that's reaching a, a new generation who's used to, um, going to YouTube to learn things. Right. I mean, that certainly wasn't the case when I was coming through YouTube didn't exist. Right. But we have a whole generation of people says, Hey, um, let me look at this. Hey, we had we had a fire. Is there is 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 one of the, my hundred fires up there? Is that similar to a fire you had last week? Did did things go well? Did things go poorly? How how can how is that stuff? How can I make it available? Um, because as much as I love going out there to teach, I there's just too many fires. I can't teach everywhere all the time. Plus, I'm retired. And I like to spend time with my wife. I like to, to spend time with my kids. I like to spend time in the mountains, um, you know. And so uh, it, it's just a way to hopefully enrich that curriculum and make it more ubiquitously available, um, recognizing that I love, to, I love to teach in person. And um, so going places and teaching is, is, you know, one of my great passions, but it's not my only one. It's not even my primary one. But I, I love it and I love to do it. Um, but there's these other resources that are available for uh, the individual or the company officer or somebody who says, look, I have 15 minutes to get better at firefighting. Maybe I can watch one of these videos. And I hope that's helpful. I had the good fortune of going to um, the Art of Reading Smoke when uh, back in the late 90s. So I, I saw... Uh, I took it from Dodson and then I've, I've been to one of your classes as well as I'm familiar with your YouTube work. And so there's one, one piece of the curriculum I'd like to like to address with you just to, to bring up. I remember Dave saying smoke is fuel, right? And then recently I remember you saying smoke is fuel, smoke is fuel, smoke is fuel. And we've talked today about the intentionality of being a good instructor. And I think that you're being very intentional when you hammer that point that way. And so can you talk to us a little bit about the, why you do that? Why you make that a point of emphasis like that? Are we not getting the message? You know, we've been saying smoke is fuel for a long time. Are we not truly appreciating that? Or why are you, why are you emphasizing that point the way you are? 
Well, I, I do that to, to one is to drive home the point, right? If, if a student comes to the class and the only, and, and I say that in the class, the only thing you remember from this class is that when you're looking at smoke, you're looking at a fuel package. If, if that's the one thing you take away from here, then that's enough. Um, and to, to have that ability. But uh, later in the curriculum, we talk about the fact that when you're in, so one of the great things about firefighting is that you get to go inside these buildings and you're swimming in fuel. Um, and I'm not shy about that. I, I think it's important to understand what you're doing and the mission matters. Um, and so, so taking an, uh, um, taking an approach where you understand that smoke is fuel and you're, putting yourself in a position where you're going to be swimming in fuel. Uh, you just got to understand that um, the fuel package needs to be the right temperature and the right mix. Right. So um, when you see lots of turbulent thick black smoke, usually that's because that mixture is there's too, it's too rich. Right. And when you see just a little bit of laminar thin smoke, that's too lean. Right. But if it's just, if it's mixed just right, if it's the right temperature and the right mix, it's going to light off. And so uh, the, the, uh, the mix is controlled by ventilation. If you add ventilation, there's going to be more fire. The, you can temporarily um, decrease the volume of smoke within a house by ventilating some of it. But when you, in the modern environment, when you add ventilation, this has probably always been true. When you add ventilation, you're going to, you're going to get more fire behavior, which means you're going to get more smoke. You can lean it out for a minute, but um, the other thing is you don't, but you're not going to lean it out long-term. You have to start getting water on the stuff that's burning, right? You have to get water on the stuff that's burning and it's that chemical reaction that creates fuel, right? You've got to stop that heat that stops the fuel, right? You stop the, you stop the, uh, you stop the fire, you stop the heat, you stop the fuel, you stop the smoke, right? It all works together. Um, the other thing is to understand that um, smoke is fuel and you're going to be swimming in fuel. The key factor is that you don't want to be swimming in hot fuel. And uh, there's, there's been, um, there, there was, and I'd, I'd have to go look at the, the last year to, to see if this trend is continuing, but there's been a, a trend of firefighters getting uh, killed in buildings with a line in their hand and they're, they're burning to death, right? They, they euphemist, euphemistically call it a thermal insult, right? But for, if you're, if you're in the space and you have the line, then you sh you should be operating in an area that's cool or at least relatively cool, right? So even if you're in the smoke, you're swimming in the smoke, you're swimming in the fuel. As long as it's not hot fuel, you are relatively safe, right? So whereas we would like to control the mix, we would like to control the ventilation. What we can largely um, do affirmative control of is the temperature. And there was a whole generation of firefighters that were taught that you do not open the line when you see smoke. You do not open the line of smoke. You just don't do it. And, and it, as a result of that, firefighters are burning. And the reality is if you're in the fuel, 
you need to control the temperature of the fuel and keep the temperature of the fuel, the temperature of the smoke below the ignition temperature, right? Which is in the in the modern environment, as you're talking about, like 450, right? There's 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 a fuel package in there that'll start lighting off at 450. And um, as you get higher, 500, 600, 700, more and more of the fuel package gets into its ignition point. And so you need to keep that temperature low. So first is that uh, smoke is fuel and you need to be understand you're swimming in, you're swimming in fuel. You, you got to accept that to begin with, uh, both because it's, it's the nature and the environment and it's, it's required of the mission. <laughs> There's just no way around it. Uh, the second point that, that builds from that first one, so reinforce that first one in the class. And then the second one is to understand it's the right temperature, right mix, and you have to control the temperature. You know, you need to apply water to the seat of the fire as fast as possible, right? And so um, that that's what solves the problem of the smoke of the fuel, right, is getting that water applied. So those those two blend together, but I start with that first one because you you have to understand that every, everywhere you see smoke, if you think about it as fuel, that fuel is connected back to the seat of the fire. It's a it's a continue it's a continuity of fuel. If you see smoke, it's connect that smoke is connected to the fire. It's fuel. The fuel is connected to the fire. The whole problem results from the fire itself. Is the application of water is controlling the temperature, keeping that temperature as low as possible because you brought the water with you that solves that problem. And so uh, I start with that one to hammer it home, but then I, I feed that into this to these other concepts that um, are just a few of those within the reading smoke curriculum to understand, you know, how how do we have a positive how do we how do we meet the mission right that's the goal is meeting the mission what can reading smoke do to help us meet the mission better faster more effectively in order to um to uh, save the lives of those citizens that we're sworn to protect i i think that's a really valuable um message that you're sending there because i can remember back in the late 90s when i took art of reading smoke and and was introduced to this idea that smoke is fuel. I'm also having just come out of recruit school saying, don't put water on smoke. And so I left the art of reading smoke uh, with some ambiguity in my mind. Okay, it's fuel. I don't put water on it. But it's becoming very clear that from the research that's being put out and, and from training like what you've just described in your curriculum, when you emphasize that smoke is fuel, smoke is fuel, smoke is fuel, and you have the ability to bring down the temperature to take a leg out of that triangle, that starts to make a lot more sense. And that ambiguity goes away. And um, so anyway, I wanted to highlight that because for me, having seen your class, I thought that was a very important takeaway. Well, I think this is a good place to call a day, Phil. This has been a really great session. I think some very valuable content and I really appreciated you taking the time to meet with me today. Well, Rob, it's been my pleasure. I appreciate being asked and I, I like talking about this stuff. Um, you know, we, uh, we started, I don't know, 90 minutes or so ago and, and, um, you know, the, to me, the time just flies by whenever I have a chance to, 
to think about or, or do some teaching or, or talk about the way that the fire service uh, can be better. It, it's still uh, of high degree of value to me to, to try to give something back um, uh, to the, to the service that's done so much for me and my family. Well, I loved having you here. This has been a great conversation. We'll put your uh, website uh, in the show notes so that folks that want to see your class schedule and uh, more information about the things that you're working on, they'll know how to access you and get a hold of you. And uh, I got a list of questions we never got to. Maybe there'll be a session two someday down the road. (laughs) Happy to do it. All right. Thanks very much, Phil. Thanks, Rob. As we wrap up, we'd love to hear from you. If you found value in today's episode, please take 10 seconds to leave us a five-star rating and review. It not only helps other fire instructors and training officers discover the show, but it also helps us to create better content for you. Simply scroll to the bottom in your favorite podcast app and hit rate and review. Your feedback means the world to us. Thank you for being a part of our community, and we'll catch you in the next episode.